swimming? Is it gymnastics? Is it track and field? Is it speed walking and all those kind of things? And when it really comes down to it, I like watching those competitions that I know that the U.S. is going to win. That's pretty much what it comes down to. So I can't wait. I, I have also learned that I have absolutely no discipline in waiting until like 8 o'clock at night to see what's going on. I have to watch throughout the day and then drop little hints that are completely wrong to my wife as she's watching for the first time. Oh, man, I, it's so sad that Michael Phelps hurts himself in this competition. Yeah. She loves me for it. Okay, grab a Bible, turn with us to Philippians chapter 4. Today we're going to be wrapping up our, our three-month study of the book of Philippians. Feels like we just started three months ago. They got it. Whatever. All right. Um, and as we... The, the main purpose of Paul writing this letter to the Philippian church was to thank them for a gift that they had sent. They had they gathered some money, and they were a very um, impoverished church. We actually find out in the book of 1 Corinthians as he's talking about the churches of Macedonia. He says, you know, they have very, very little and yet they have been so faithful to give. And so we know that the Philippian church had had kind of pooled some resources and sent a gift with one of their elders, a guy named Epaphroditus, to take it to Paul as he is sitting in prison, whether it's house arrest or in jail, awaiting trial that could ultimately possibly end in his execution. And so they're sending him some finances he needs to be able to support himself while he's in jail. And so he writes this... Oh, while he's writing the letter, as we've looked at over the past couple of months, as he's writing it, he's definitely using it as an opportunity to encourage them as they're kind of living in the midst of a lot of persecution from non-believers around them. There's also some infighting going on between a couple of the members of that church that he kind of tries to just say, hey, Get past those things. Be unified. And then as we talked about last week, he's exhorting them as a church to engender and to kind of cultivate attitudes of joyfulness in the midst of the brokenness around them. But as he's now wrapping up this letter in the last couple of paragraphs, he's going to return now to his main point, and that is to thank them for the gift that they sent. So verse 10 of chapter 4 of Philippians. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you've renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you've been concerned, but you really had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles, Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, which is kind of the province that Philippi lands in, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may may be credited to your account. I've received full payment and even more. I'm amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he begins to wrap up his letter. Greet all of the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send their greetings. All of the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Now I read that and I'm going, okay, so he's trying to thank him for the gift. Why the heck does he 
qualify his thanks so much. It's kind of funny, isn't it? It's almost kind of like he's saying, hey, thank you so much for the gift. I didn't really need it, you know, because I'm really content in everything. But what I'm really grateful for is that I get to see your heart in the midst of it. So thanks for that. And, and there's a part of me that goes, well, why does he need to qualify it? Why can't he just come straight out and say, thank you. I really appreciate it. But as a pastor, I understand kind of the, the fine line that he's trying to walk because the reality is he's talking about money and money is one of those topics that as a pastor is really uncomfortable to talk about. In the 21st century especially, it's uncomfortable because there have been so many televangelists, so many preachers who have focused so much on money that in a lot of ways the, it's almost insinuated that God is only interested in your wallet, not in your heart. Or it's insinuated in some way that the church is only after your money, not after actually wanting to care for you. And, and so there's a part of me that doesn't want to perpetuate that stereotype and, and a part of me that just goes, you know, let's just avoid the topic altogether because really the last thing I want is for somebody new to be walking into the church and the first thing they hear is, oh, here, here comes the money talk. They're going to ask me for money and all that kind of stuff. So I want to avoid that. On the flip side, the Bible spends so much time addressing the issue of money and of possessions. In fact, if you look at it, you know, something like 15% of Scripture is addressing the issue of money or, or possessions. Something like 2,200 references in the Bible. Jesus himself spent about 20% of his teaching time talking about money and finances and, and possessions. Why? Because he recognized that our money is the single greatest competitor for God for our worship. We've talked about worship in the past, and worship simply means to ascribe worth to something. To say, you are so worthy that I'm going to reorient my life around you. I'm going to pursue you because I need you. And money is the, the, the single greatest idol in our life that we tend to move towards thinking that it will somehow be able to give us control and power and protect us from the things that we're concerned about. Our circumstances, if, if, if my life gets out of control, if I get sick, so long as I have money, then at least I can provide, I can get the very best doctors to fix myself. I'm in control of that circumstance. If I have enough money, then it doesn't matter what happens with work. I've always got that safety net that I can fall back on. And so money becomes one of those things that competes with God for our worship. It becomes a modern-day idol. And I will say this up front, and I'm going to hit it a couple of times. God is not primarily interested in our money. He's after our hearts. But as Jesus pointed out, you know, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. One of the best ways to get to our heart oftentimes is to go through our money because that is what leads us. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a, in a little bit. Paul was well aware of this kind of dynamic because charlatan preachers, people who are really just kind of gaming the system to satisfy their own greed are nothing new. In fact, in Paul's day, he had philosophers that would go city to city and they would go out on the street corners and they would preach to the people and they would kind of share their philosophy. And not only would they expect people to submit to their teaching, but they would also expect people to support them financially. And there's a, a quote from a guy... Um, named Lucian, not that one, 
Oh, yeah, we missed that one. No one can serve two masters. This is a good one. We shouldn't skip it. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So again, Jesus reminding us, this is not a matter of just your finances. This is a matter of your heart and of your worship. Let's go to the the quote from Lucian. Okay, so this is a, a second century satirist who's pointing out, kind of pointing the finger at these traveling philosophers. He says they, they collect tribute going from house to house or as they themselves express it, they shear the sheep. Keep going. And they expect many to give either out of respect for their cloth, for their, their role or for fear of their abusive language because if you don't give, who do you think is going to be the, the, the focus of their critique? Okay, so Paul is coming into a system where there are already people out there, charlatan philosophers who are going around and basically using their platform as preachers to be able to guilt people into giving. And the last thing that Paul wants to do is be lumped right in with them and have people look at the, the gospel message and say, well, the only reason that he's preaching is because he's trying to get something from us. And so what Paul does is he begins to, to step back from that. And go, listen, thank you for the finances that you sent, but I didn't need them. This isn't the only letter that he does this in. There's a couple of different places. I wrote them here in, in your notes. The first place that he addresses this in is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So go there if you want to. It's also written in your notes. It's also right up there on the board. So he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11. If we have sown spiritual seed amongst you, so he's talking about himself and those who have traveled with him, they have shared the gospel message. So if we've sown spiritual seed amongst you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? Is it too much to ask? If others have a right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. The last thing we wanted to do is to allow us preaching the gospel to be colored by some belief that we are somehow doing it for the money. Turn to 1 Thessalonians. Or you can just look at it in your, your Bibles. Uh, verse, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6. Again, as apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle amongst you, like a mother caring for her children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Verse 9, surely you remember, brothers, our toil and our hardship. Okay, We worked night and day. Remember, Paul not only preached the gospel, but his occupation was as a tent maker. He worked night and day to, to, to make tents, to make money, so he could go out and share the gospel free of needing or being dependent on other people. Uh, where was I? Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and our hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. So again, Paul is hypervigilant to protect against this idea that he is somehow in it for the money, that he is somehow doing it out of greed. Now let's go back to Philippians chapter 4. Because as he's wrapping up this letter and he's thanking him for their gift, he's wanting to kind of distance himself from these charlatan philosophers who are in it for the wrong reasons. And so he says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you've been concerned, but you really had no opportunity to show it. 
But as there was a need that presented itself, Paul being in prison, awaiting his trial, and because the prisons didn't necessarily provide all of their food and all of the health care and all of those kind of things that modern-day prisoners get, he had to provide those things for himself, which lends credibility to the fact that he was probably under house arrest. They decided, hey, let's, let's scrape together some finances. Let's give it to Epaphroditus, who can also be an encouragement to him because he can go out there and just pray with him and be with him. And they send Epaphroditus off to bring Paul the resources that, that they've gathered together to address this particular need that they're seeing. But the last thing that he wants is that for them to think that his ministry is somehow contingent upon their giving, but also that he's somehow motivated in his ministry to get something from them. So he goes, hey, listen, not that I am, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether being well-fed or hungry, whether making a living in plenty or in want. Here's the thing. Paul is using a, a term there when he says, I've learned how to be content. That's a term that was used by Stoic philosophers of his day. They were the ones who used it the most. See, Stoicism was this idea that they recognized that life was really kind of fickle and circumstances were changing over and over. And the Stoics kind of looked at the way that our emotions were so tied to our circumstances and they went, there's something wrong with this. Because should my contentment, should my happiness, should my joy be contingent upon what's going on in life? Well, then it's going to be like I'm strapping myself into a roller coaster and it's going to be an up and a down throughout the rest of my life. And it's pretty much going to end on a down for the most part because at some point I'm going to die. So the Stoics decided we are going to value above all else contentment. Another way that you could translate that is self-sufficiency, not needing anything from the outside to satisfy their joy in life. Now, it sounds somewhat similar to what we were talking about last week when Paul says, hey, rejoice in the Lord always. And we talked about how our circumstances should not be tied, or our joy should not be tied to our circumstances, that it transcends it because our, our joy really is an attitude or a posture on life. But there's one major difference between Paul and the Stoic philosophers. Because the Stoic philosophers believed that self-sufficiency, that contentment was from within. It was a decision that I can make this happen. It's my own internal fortitude that makes me content. Paul, on the other hand, says that his secret is not his, his own strength, but something else. Let's look at this again. Verse 12. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty, because I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Whereas the Stoic philosopher is saying, the strength comes from within, I make myself content, Paul is simply saying, listen, my contentment comes from a right perspective on life because I've learned that I'm not the central character of my own little story. I'm part of a much, much greater story of which God is the central character and I get to be a supporting cast member. I have learned that the most important thing in life is not my contentment, is not my safety, is not my satisfaction, is not my comfort. 
The most important thing in life is God's purposes advancing, his kingdom advancing. And if I get to be a part of that, even if it means my discomfort in this moment, even if it ultimately results in my death, praise be to God, because that is where my contentment comes from. And so these momentary circumstances, they're light because they're brief from the perspective of looking at my circumstances in the scheme of eternity. And so listen, I've learned the secret to being content. And it is my relationship with God that enables me to walk through anything with a smile on my face because I know that ultimately God is being glorified and I have eternity with him to look forward to. So he makes this point, but he still is, is not wanting to just completely dismiss it altogether. So he goes back to now affirming and thanking them for their concern. And he thanks them for reasons that are not necessarily the superficial ones, like thank you for making my life more comfortable. He thanks them for two very different reasons in their giving. Let's look at what those are. Verse 14. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Okay, so the first thing that we notice here, and he goes on to say, you know, you Philippians were the first ones to support me in all of these different things. And as we were, I was traveling to Thessalonica, again and again you supported me. But it's interesting that he says, it was good of you to share in my troubles, as if they are somehow joining with him in his circumstances. And in a lot of ways, that's what they're doing. By scraping together their finances, by making that financial sacrifice, they are joining with him in his ministry. They have become partners, supporting uh, members of his ministry. They have become a part of this with him. So he says, first, thank you for joining me in the ministry of advancing the gospel because you are playing a part in God's purposes being done and in the kingdom of God advancing into these new places. But that's not the most important reason that he thanks them. Because he goes on in verse 18, the second half of it. He says this, Those gifts that you give, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. The, the second and perhaps the most important reason why Paul celebrated their giving is because it revealed to him what they worshipped. Remember, where our treasure is, there our heart will go also. And the danger of money is it becomes that thing that we begin to hold on to and say, this is what I trust in. This is what I serve. This is my protection. This is my provision. And I will trust in God, but I need to hold on to this because this is my safety net. And what their giving reveals is a declaration both to Paul, to the society around them, to God, but to themselves as well. That they are not going to worship their money as much as they worship God. And in their giving, they begin to peel the fingers of their heart back away from their stuff and say, this is not my provision. There's this really interesting quote that I found. Can we throw that up on the board? Uh, if not, I got it here. And it's in your notes as well. From, by Jacques Ellul. And he says this, there is one act par excellence which profanes money by going directly against the laws of money. An act for which money is not made. This act is giving. Let me read that one more time. There is one act par excellence which profanes money by going directly against the laws of money. An act for which money was not made. That act is to give it away. Because when we hold on to our money... 
when we treat it as something of such extreme value that it basically becomes our security blanket, it becomes that, that safety net that when it begins to rain, that's the thing that we turn to first. And only when that begins to dwindle do we start turning towards God and say, okay, now I need your help. That's when it becomes one of those idols for our hearts. Last year, we actually did a series on modern American idols, and and roughly two-thirds of us claimed that money was the single greatest idol of our hearts, the single number one thing that competed with God for our worship. And the act of giving it is an act of circumventing or an act of of short-circuiting its power and its control over us because it's it's a declaration not only to God but to ourselves that this is not where my security comes from. I trust God. So our giving is, an actual, is actually a, an act of discipleship. It's a declaration of trust. And so Paul celebrates the fact that they are willing to give because of what it reveals about their worship. And then he finishes this section with this interesting quote that, that's quoted a lot. He says this, in light of the fact that their gifts are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God, verse 19, and my God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Now we read that, and it can be very easy to read that to mean, if I simply give, God will be faithful to give me even more, right? There's this nice equation that if I give 10%, he'll give me 100%. If I give him a little bit, My bank account has to swell because he's got fabulous riches. He's got, he's got all the money in the world. But we're failing to, the point that we're failing to take into consideration is that verse comes in the context of this section, a section where Paul has just said, Hey, listen, I know what it means to be in need. I know what it means to have a lot. I know what it means to feel hungry and to be full. But here's the secret. I have learned that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So for Paul, I mean, if there's anybody who was faithful to God in sacrificing, anybody who could expect a financial windfall if that's what God is promising or if that's solely what he's promising, it would be Paul. And yet he experienced seasons of poverty. He experienced seasons of deprivation and need. Not only that, but turn with me for a moment, or you don't need to turn there, but it's, it's not in your notes. But let me just read it. Ephesians chapter 3. There's a prayer that Paul prays over the Ephesian church in which he references God's great riches. But what I want you to notice is what God will provide for them out of his riches in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Uh, For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Out of his glorious riches, I pray that he would strengthen you in your inner being, knowing who you are, not being swayed by what the world tells you to be, not being swayed by what people have said that have been cutting, that you would know deep down who you are, that you would know deep down whose you are, 
and that you would have a proper perspective on life, on your circumstances, because of the empowerment that God gives you out of His great riches. God promises to provide for our needs, but sometimes what we need is not necessarily just financial. Now, it definitely can be. And He is definitely faithful to provide what we need, sometimes in ways that are very humbling, as many of us have experienced, sometimes in ways where we are not fully in control. I remember probably the the greatest season where this has become true, where I saw God's provision in a lot of different ways, were the eight months between the last church that I was at and coming to Lighthouse. When I first left our previous church, I anticipated that God may have us kind of in a season of about a month before we found our way here uh, or, or to wherever he was going to lead. And for about a month, I was just... And the part of it that really scared me is when I first left, I looked at our bank account and I went, Kathy, we have about three months worth of finances in there. Does this mean that God's going to keep us kind of out in the wilderness for three months? Maybe if we just give it away, we can kind of speed this whole process up. Yeah, literally, that crossed my mind because I'm going, three months is way too long. After about a month of looking, God said very specifically in a way that he just impressed it on my heart and I knew exactly what he meant. I heard him say, be still. And he began to bring me back again and again through different ways to Psalm 23. This psalm that declares, I will make you lie down in green pastures. I lead you beside still waters because I am am in the process of restoring your soul. See, the thing is, I had grown grown really spiritually um, dry, really stale in my own relationship with God. I'd been so focused as a pastor on ministering to other people that I no longer showed up to church to meet with God. I no longer focused on cultivating my own intimate relationship with Him. We were also pretty new parents and all of our focus was on our our boy. And so my marriage began to suffer because we really weren't communicating about us and our stuff. And in every way, I was pretty unhealthy. And when I left... The major concern on my mind was financial. How am I going to provide? We're a single income family and I've just given that income up. God, you're going to need to show up. And there was a part of me that really, really wanted to be like those Israelites in the desert who see God provide day after day. You wake up in the morning and look, there's bread for today. He did. He provided our daily bread, but I didn't want to be like them in the sense that I was dependent upon that. I wanted to make sure that in the back of the tent, I had some power bars just in case there wasn't bread. Right? So over the course of eight months, because that's the amount of time that he kept us in a posture of waiting. That's the amount of time that he kept us in the green pasture next to the still waters. Over the course of that time, he did provide financially. Because when we finally said yes to this, this role here and we got to join this community we still had three months worth of income in our bank account and I cannot to this day explain where it came from. But he provided what we needed in that time through other people, through little odd jobs that we didn't go looking for. He provided. But more importantly, far more importantly than the finances was what he had done in here. He truly had restored my soul. He had restored my marriage and my joy in my wife. He restored my my 
gratitude to be a daddy. I mean, because for about eight months, I got to be with Ethan almost full time and it's exhausting. Ladies who are stay-at-home mothers, it's the hardest job. I get to go to work and thank you that I get to do that. So in that season, I discovered that God provided what I needed and what I thought I needed were two different things. Yes, finances were something that we needed, but more importantly, I just needed to reconnect with my spiritual head. I really just needed to rest in him and be restored in him. And for some of us here, we are so focused on the financial aspect of our needs and we miss the bigger picture. What we really need is that empowerment that comes from being united with our God, walking in lockstep with him, recognizing who we are and what really matters in life. I'll say this. God is not the author nor is he the underwriter of the American dream. That's not his dream for us. But I think far too many of us approach God and approach our faith thinking that it is the secret to getting our happy life, to getting our our house, the cars that we wanted, plural, to getting all of our needs met. And it is if getting our needs met goes beyond tangible things. But when we begin to approach God thinking that he will then fulfill the American dream in us, we're missing the point. So what do we take from this? From Paul's approach to this, there are three things that I want to highlight before we move into a time of response. The first thing is that God is not primarily interested in our wallets. He's not after our money. He's after our hearts. But he knows that sometimes what really gets in the way is our wallets. And where our treasure is, our hearts tend to follow. And so as he approaches, as a rich young guy who comes up to Jesus and says, hey, how do I inherit eternal life? And when Jesus looked at him, he loved him. And he goes, listen, follow, follow the tenets that God set out. He goes, hey, I've done that. I followed the law. And Jesus says, there's only one thing that you're lacking. Sell everything you have, give it away to the poor, and then, and I, and I dream of hearing this, come follow me. A personal invitation to do life with Christ. And this young guy looks at Jesus, looks at his stuff, and he goes away sad because he has so much of this that he simply can't give it up. Now, I am not suggesting that God is asking any of us to empty our bank accounts and give it away and go live on the street. And that is how we're going to honor him and glorify him. He may call some people to do that, but that is not something that he declares to all of us to do. What it is revealing is that sometimes our stuff gets in the way of what really matters. I mean, can you imagine that young guy now, today, some 2,000 years later? Because he's dead. He didn't bring a single penny with him. What do you think he would say about that opportunity? Given it that, that chance to do it again, what do you think his decision would be now? I think he would jump at the opportunity to take Jesus up on the opportunity to follow him. So the first invitation is, is to just trust God because he's not after our money, he's after our hearts. And to stop looking at God as just simply some cosmic tax collector. Wait a minute, you might say. If, if we don't give, then Lighthouse, the church, will cease to exist. And there's some truth to that. 
Because if none of us gave, then, you know, at some point we probably would have to close the doors here and we might have to sell the property and all those things. But let me say this. This building is not the church. We, this community, followers of Jesus Christ, we are the church. So even if this church stopped meeting here on Sundays, that doesn't mean that God has lost, that he's failed. Because God can advance his kingdom even without this church being here, even without this building being here. He could still use us in those circumstances. And sometimes a kernel of wheat has to die and fall off and go to the ground before it can become productive. Sometimes churches straight up have to close in order for people who would otherwise not leave them to scatter and to begin ministering to other people. So would, you know, long story short, God would not lose in that situation because God is above our circumstances and he can use any circumstances. And the last thing I want you to think is that the reason we give is somehow to perpetuate lighthouse the building. Because the second point I want to point out is that our giving is just as much about our own spiritual development as it is about caring for other people and other needs. Yes, it helps people. Yes, our giving, those of us who gave to the Africa missions, yes, they're going there. Hopefully is advancing the gospel. My guess is for those who are there, it's actually advancing the gospel much deeper into their own lives than it is to the people that they're interacting with or just as much. But when we looked at our giving, it is actually a matter of our discipleship. It is a matter of declaring to God that we trust him over our stuff, that he alone is in control, that we ourselves are not. And it is an act of appealing the fingers of our heart back away from our things and saying, God, everything I have is yours. So it's really not a matter of how much of my stuff do you want from me, but how much of your money do you want me to keep? How would you like me to use this because it's not a matter of a 10% or a 5% or a 20%. It's a matter of a hundred percent saying, God, this is yours. Show me how to invest your resources. I have been blessed, but it's not simply for my own comfort. I've been blessed to be a blessing. How can I be a blessing? Not only with my finances, but with my time. How can I be a blessing with the gifts and the resources, meaning the skills and the insights that God has entrusted me with. Every single one of you has more wealth, and I'm, I'm talking about more than simply finances here. You have far more than you realize. But it's not simply for yourself to spend on yourself. We get to join with God in a much grander invitation. That's an invitation to advance the kingdom of God with him to be hope to a world that is desperately in need of hope. To love where so many people are preaching so much hate. To be unifying when there's so much division. But ultimately, to be ambassadors of reconciliation. As if God were making his appeal to a hurting, broken world through us. We get to play a part in this, and that's exciting. Far more exciting than our own little narratives where God gets to be a supporting cast member. I hope that as we've gone through Philippians, we've begun to realize that we want to trade that in to be a bit player in a grand narrative where God is in the process of restoring a world back into relationship with himself, and we get to play a part in that. And the final point, okay, 
Not only is God not after our, our money, He's after our hearts. Not only do we recognize that you know, it, it, our giving is just as much, if not more so, about our own spiritual development as it is about caring for others' needs. But God promises to care for our needs. But we must not read that to mean that it's simply a financial blessing. Because our needs go far deeper than finances. Our needs go to our spiritual connection with him. And, and probably the things that we need more than anything is intimacy with our God. And perspective on our life. Knowing who we are and whose we are. So I'm going to invite the, the worship team to come forward. And we're going we're gonna to spend some time in a couple of songs. This first song, I would encourage many of you to spend this first song just having a conversation with God. And bringing the issue of your finances to Him and saying, God, what am I worshiping? What have I ascribed worth to? What have I placed my trust in? You or my stuff? And how would you like to change my perspective on it. And then we're going to go into a time of uh, the second song. The ushers are going to come forward. And this is going to be a time where if you feel led, this is an opportunity to tangibly respond. If you feel led. It's also an opportunity for you to put those connection cards and things in, in the offering. And for those of you who are new here, and if you feel like you're not ready, please do not feel obligated. But this is an opportunity to tangibly respond. Okay, so let me pray for us, and we're going to go into a time of response. Father, I thank you <laughs> that you put up uh, with our unfaithful seeking after things that are not you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for loving us in spite of our tendency to, to worship other things. And I thank you for your faithful provision for more than just our food, for more than just our shelter, for more than just our clothing and our spending money. Thank you for providing Jesus so that at the end of the day, the deepest need of our heart an identity that is found firmly and solely in you and a purpose to follow you and to be your representatives to a hurting and desperate world. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for providing for our needs. And now we, we just bring our stuff before you and ask that you would show us where our perspective needs to change. Jesus, in your name, amen.